Uh, let me greet all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. We may or may not need to correct this. I'm off to... You know, we're a family after all, we want to have that, um, that feel, get an abundance today. As I was saying, I think that's better, as I was saying, let me uh, welcome all those of you who are uh, gathered with us today to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 through 10. This is our second to last uh, Sunday in this letter. Uh, we will conclude, Lord willing, next week, and then we will start Second uh, Timothy after. First Timothy 6, verse 2b, so the second half of 2. Let's hear God's word together. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that you are our treasure. To have you is to have everything, if, even if we lack many of the world's goods. Heavenly Father, we pray that our hearts would be increasingly satisfied in you as our supreme good. We pray that you would deepen our delight in you, Heavenly Father. If it is the case that there are some in our midst this morning whose lives are defined not by the love of God and the pursuit of God, but by the love and pursuit of money, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would, your word would convict them and bring them to repentance. We pray that we would all know, know the joy and the freedom of living for your glory and serving you and putting you above everything else. So please, Father, use your word today to bring about a contentment in our lives and in our hearts. Uh, help us, Lord, to seek not more and more wealth and money, uh, but greater and greater faithfulness to you. Amen. Scripture teaches that one of the great rivals to loyalty to God and affection for him is love of money, the pursuit of money. Jesus very famously says that you cannot serve both God and money. It's either or. Many people recognize that money doesn't buy happiness, but they would still like to try. They still want to find out if that's really the case. On the one hand, money doesn't buy happiness. On the other hand, everybody pursues it as though it does. And so there is this illusion 
that on the other side of a little more, on the other side of a little more, there can be peace, uh, happiness, contentment, and prosperity. And this passage punctures that illusion. In, in this passage, the apostle Paul shows us the folly of that way of thinking. Uh, and he calls us to be content with our circumstances, whatever they are, and to devote our lives not to the ever-increasing uh, acquisition of wealth, but to, the, to obedience to God. We're called to be content that we might live for the glory of God. We're going to note three things as we look at this passage. First, false teachers are greedy for gain. False teachers are greedy for gain. Second, contentment is great gain. And third, love of money is a great danger. So in this section, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, teach and urge these things looking back to what he has said previously. Timothy has a responsibility to convey these truths to uh, the, the believers at Ephesus. And he is not only to teach, he is to urge. It's part of the pastoral task to lovingly and wisely interfere in the lives of God's people, to encourage them towards obedience. This is what God wants for you. Do that, he says to Timothy. And then he notes that if anyone teaches something other than what Paul is telling Timothy to teach, a different doctrine, if they don't agree with Jesus, they are arrogant and ignorant, verse 4. Now what's intriguing about verse 3 is that Paul seems to equate what he communicates to Timothy, the doctrine that he has just expounded, with the words of Christ. In other words, what Paul says, Christ says. There is an ambiguity in verse 3. We could translate the phrase, words of our Lord Jesus Christ, as words concerning Jesus Christ or about Jesus Christ. In other words, the words or the message is about Jesus. That's a possibility. Or we can translate it as the words from our Lord Jesus Christ with the idea that it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And I think that fits the context well. These false teachers are arrogant and ignorant precisely because they disagree not simply with the words of the Apostle Paul, but with the very words of Christ. But the implication is that when we hear Paul speaking, when we read these words that he has written, we are hearing the words of the risen Lord to us, the words of the Son of God. What Paul says, Christ says. What Scripture says, God says. And it is precisely because Scripture has its origin in God. It is the Word of God that it is our supreme authority in life. There is no other authority that can equal the authority of God's Word. The implication of that is significant. It shapes how we view lived experience, for example. A lot of times we look at the way life is and we move from our experience to saying this is what God is like based on my experience. But we need to let Scripture interpret our experiences and not our experiences shape our conception of God. Very often, lived experience is at odds with what Scripture says is true. When things are not working out, when your plans are not coming to fruition, when life is hard, you can be tempted to think, and your experience can say to you, God is indifferent, he's very far, he is not with you. That's the voice of experience. On the other hand, Scripture says, Christ says to us in Scripture, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Which are you going to believe? In some ways, that's the essential fight of the Christian life. Are we going to believe what our circumstances and experiences say? Or are we going to believe what the Word of God says about our circumstances? 
Scripture being the very word of God should be the thing that interprets everything else. So the words of Paul are the words of Christ. And those who reject this teaching, this sound instruction coming from the mouth of our Lord, are swollen with arrogance and they are ignorant. To reject Christ and the wisdom of his word is to be proud, ignorant. He further characterizes these false teachers as having an unhealthy craving for controversy. They have a sick obsession with speculative arguments and debates. They quibble over words. And the result of fighting over these speculative ideas is that there is relational discord. As a result of the quarrels, uh, there is slander, envy, dissension, evil suspicion, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Debating pointless speculative things can, de- can be deeply harmful, relationally speaking. Uh, yes, Scripture calls us to engage and debate an argument for the sake of contending for the truth. There's a time and place for that. But as the New Testament scholar D.A. Carson said, uh, we should contend for the truth but not be contentious about the truth. It takes wisdom to know, yes, I should engage in this, or no, this is an unprofitable argument. It's best left aside. These unprofitable arguments can lead to deep relational troubles, and that's what we see in this passage. And then by, underscore, by way of underscoring their ignorance, their failure to grasp the truth, Paul says that they imagine godliness is a means of gain. Godliness comes close to the Old Testament idea of the fear of the Lord. It conveys the idea that there is a profound reverence, loyalty, and love for God that overflows in obedience. That's godliness. And these false teachers conceive of godliness as a path to wealth. Become godly so you can become rich. And Paul sees that as an expression of their folly and their darkened intellect. This is proof that they're not thinking clearly. It's worth lingering over that, emphasizing that point, because there is, uh, in our day, in certain circles, the teaching that God wants you to be rich, the prosperity gospel. You may have heard that expression. God's will for you is to be rich. Paul says that that way of thinking reveals that you are ignorant, that you're not thinking clearly. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. So here in this verse, we see Paul repudiating what we see in many circles today, the idea that if you are walking with Christ and you are godly, you're going to be rich. Only a darkened mind views godliness as the path to wealth. Now, intriguingly, Paul doesn't say there is no gain in godliness, verse 6. There's just gain of a different kind. And here Paul transition, uh, transitions from the greed of the false teachers, which we see in verse 5, to a call to contentment. And he tells us that there is great gain in contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. At one level, they're not wrong. There is gain in godliness, but not that kind of gain. There is a spiritual gain that we get when we walk in contentment. An essential ingredient in godliness or the fear of the Lord is contentment. A mark of fearing the Lord is that you are content in your circumstances. Now, what is contentment? How do we define it? 
Well, contentment is a smiling baby in the arms of its mother after it has been well-fed and changed. In other words, there is a harmony between desire and circumstances. Contentment means wanting what you have. Contentment means being at peace with your circumstances, uh, being satisfied in the condition where God has placed you. There isn't this restless desire for more, more, more. There is a sense of peace with where you are in life. You look around at your life and you say, Lord, truly the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. That's contentment. And it is a mark of the fear of the Lord. Those who are walking with the Lord, who reverence him, are at peace with their circumstances. This is the virtue that Paul would have us all to cultivate. And there is tremendous benefit or advantage in it. Tremendous spiritual advantage in contentment. Uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, in his wonderful little book, Jeremiah Burroughs was a Puritan, and he wrote this little book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And it's wonderful in this theme. Uh, Burroughs makes the case that when we are at peace with our circumstances, we are worshiping the Lord. It is a way to honor and revere God. And here's what he says. It is but one side of, of a Christian to endeavor to do what pleases God. You must as well endeavor to be pleased with what God does. And so you will come to be a complete Christian when you can do both. What he's saying is that obedience to the will of God is half of our duty. Yes, we should do what God tells us to do. But the other half of our duty is to be okay with what he does in our lives and the circumstances he places us in. And when we say, Lord, I submit cheerfully and from the heart even to these circumstances, that brings glory and honor to God. And so there is great profit from contentment. It is an act of worship. And we should insist that the reverse is true as well. Those who look at their circumstances, grumble and complain and are frustrated by them and perhaps frustrated with God are failing to give God the glory and honor. They are actually rebelling against God through their sinful attitude. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Why? Paul gives us the reason in verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. You came into the world naked and crying, and you will leave this world the way you came into the world. And what Paul is saying is that wealth, the wealth we lust for, long for, pursue at all costs, that wealth is fleeting. You can't take it with you into eternity. Your lands, your houses, your cars, they won't follow you into the world to come. They're temporary. So if wealth is temporary, why would you spend your life pursuing wealth, pursuing more and more and more? These things don't follow you into the world to come. Contentment is liberating because it frees us not to waste our life in the pursuit of wealth that doesn't last, to pursue the things of eternal significance. When all is said and done and you come to the end of your life, you come to the door marked eternity, and you look back on it all. You're not going to regret the fact that you have, you've had one house instead of four. The fact that you didn't ever get your dream car. Those things won't matter to you then. 
in that moment, you'll, you'll see more clearly than perhaps you see in the present the things that are of lasting significance. When you look back on your life, you're probably not going to say, man, I spent way too much time praying. Shouldn't have sunk all that time into prayer. Shouldn't have spent all of that time reading Scripture and meditating on its message. Wasted a bunch of time with my kids. Spent way too much time trying to share the gospel with unbelievers. Those are things you probably won't say at the end of your life, right? You will wish, looking back, that those are the things that you had devoted yourself to and the things that you have pursued, especially material prosperity, will seem to you then shallow and trivial in the light of eternity. Well, live now as you want to be then. Give yourself to prayer. Serve people. Seek to advance Christ's kingdom. Don't be consumed by the ever-increasing pursuit of wealth. Contentment liberates us not to waste our life in the pursuit of money. And it frees us to pursue the things of eternal significance, of lasting significance. Well, what should we be content with? Verse 8. Food and clothing. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. The word translated clothing could be translated covering. It refers in the first instance to clothes, but it might include shelter. Either way, the idea is the basic necessities of life are sufficient for us. Paul is saying if you have the basic necessities of life, food, shelter, clothing, you should be at peace with those circumstances. You should be cheerful and satisfied in the midst of those circumstances. Now, I dare say that everybody in this room has been blessed by God with far more material prosperity than just the basics of life. And so if we are meant to be content when we have just the basics, how much more should all of us be content with our circumstances today? If we should be content when we have just the essentials of life, how much more content should all of us be right now with our financial circumstances? God's will for us is to be at peace with where he has placed us. Now, let's consider what Paul doesn't mean when he says we will be content with food and clothing. Is he saying that it's wrong to desire more than just food and clothing? Any desire beyond the bare necessities is sinful? Don't believe he's saying that. One reason I don't think he's saying that is because in chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, 4, Paul says everything created by God is good. All the world, all the good things of life, all of these things are good. If they're good, then by implication, they are desirable at some level, are they not? Their goodness implies that there's a certain legitimacy to desiring them. We shouldn't over-desire them. There's a place for a restrained desire for the good things of life. Uh, neither is it sinful to seek to take step to steps towards financial progress. Again, this is a restrained step taking. We don't devote our lives to this, but Proverbs 8:18 says, "Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness speaking of in this context, wisdom is speaking. Proverbs 10:4, "Slack hand causes poverty." But the hand of the diligent makes rich. So there's an encouragement. If you work hard, there's wealth that accompanies that. So there is a place for the contented pursuit of the improvement of our financial situation, a restrained pursuit of prosperity. We are not wrong to desire some of the good things of life and to take some steps 
in that direction. Okay, if, that, if that's what Paul doesn't mean, then what does he mean in verse 8? Well, the first thing he means, is, as I've suggested, is that even if your financial situation should shrivel up to the point that you have only food, shelter, and clothing, you should be happy with your life. That's enough. That's enough uh, to be thankful to the Lord, to have peace, and to have satisfaction with your life. That's the first thing Paul's saying. If you have just the basics of life, God's will for you is to be satisfied with that. Now, an implication of that, if, if that's true, if you're the kind of person who could be satisfied with just the necessities of life, then the implication is that you will also be the kind of person who, who doesn't seek to live very extravagantly or in luxury. You, you will live a simple, relatively modest life. Christians, regardless of where they are economically, should not live in luxury and self-indulgence and think that increasing prosperity is an opportunity to spend more on themselves. Every Christian, regardless of where they are economically, should seek to live a relatively simple and modest life. Now, there is no biblical formula for figuring this out. We need discernment and wisdom. Doesn't mean we're all going to live the same way. There are poor Christians, we see that in Scripture. There are wealthier Christians in Scripture, that's fine. Uh, there are legitimate differences. We shouldn't, we shouldn't try to put everybody in the same box. But all of us need discernment to go, what does a simple, modest lifestyle look like for me? Luxury, self-indulgence is off limits for all of God's people. And finally, as we think through what Paul means, we should know that contentment with the necessities of life means that we will not seek to improve our financial situation at all costs. We don't need to be doing better. We might want to do a little better, but we don't chafe with frustration if we don't do any better than we're currently doing. Uh, a contented person may seek economic improvement, but they're not holding on to it tightly. A person who doesn't have contentment pursues money and financial improvement at all costs even to the neglect of more fundamental responsibilities in life than the acquisition of money. Such as, for instance, raising godly children, which is a fundamental priority, especially when the children are young. If a man gets a second job so he can pay for his second vacation home, and he doesn't have time to invest in his children and in his marriage, and his family is collapsing because of his overwork, then that's sin. I'm not talking about a situation where you have to overwork because you need to do that to survive. I'm talking about a situation where you overwork because you simply want more. The unrestrained pursuit of more is a contradiction of what Paul says in verse 8. So a huge implication of verse 8 is this. God's will for you right now is to be contented and at peace with your circumstances the way they are today. You shouldn't believe the lie that if you get a little bit more and do a little bit better, then you'll find peace at last. If you can't be contented right now in your present circumstances, you're not going to be contented tomorrow when your circumstances improve. You'll bring the same restless heart to those new and improved circumstances that you have with you now. Be at peace with what God has given you today. How do we do that? It's hard. And apart from Christ, it's impossible. But Paul gives us the secret of contentment in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. 
We are content not because we have some inner reservoir of strength, but because of the strength that our Lord Jesus provides. Paul writes, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How can we be cheerful when we have just the necessities of life? It's because we have far more than the necessities of life in Jesus Christ. Having him and living in the strength that he provides enables us to be satisfied even when we live in relatively modest circumstances. As we walk with our Lord, as we trust in him, as we look to him for spiritual power through the Holy Spirit, we find that we can be at peace even in very humble circumstances. Contentment is found through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus Christ. But what practically can we do to cultivate contentment as well? Jeremiah Burroughs, in that book I mentioned, suggests the following. I know nothing more effective for quieting a Christian soul and getting contentment than this. Setting your heart to work in the duties of the immediate circumstances that you are in, and taking heed of your thoughts about other conditions as a mere temptation. What he's saying is lose yourself in your present responsibilities. Focus on the present. What has God called you to do? Lean into those responsibilities. Do them with all your heart. Fulfilling present responsibilities is liberating, helps to promote contentment. And when you find your mind wandering, thinking about what life could be, you resist that seeing that trajectory of your thinking as a temptation. You shut the door on those thoughts and you lean into present responsibilities and you feel more content with things. I would add to that, give thanks to God for what you have. Itemize the many blessings of life that he has given to you, spiritual and material. And when you itemize your blessings before the Lord and give thanks for one thing after another, what ha- you've done this, what happens to your heart? There's a peace that settles over it. And finally, what can we do practically to cultivate contentment? Stop comparing yourselves to one another. Stop comparing yourself to the people around you. What happens when your parents get you Legos as a kid, the Legos you wanted? You are ecstatic. You rejoice in the gift. You play with your Legos. And what happens to your joy when you go across the street to play with your friend and discover that he has better Legos, more Legos? The glow diminishes. Right? The joy fades. Uh, it's not that your situation has changed at all. It's that you are now comparing with yourself to what the other guy has. If you want to be content, stay in your lane. Look at your own life. Don't look over the fence at the neighbor and what they're doing. Let God deal with the neighbor. Look at what God has given you and give thanks for it, and you'll be content. Now, the opposite of this satisfaction with life circumstances is lust for money. And that's what Paul talks about in verses 9 and 10. This greed for more and more. And he specifically underscores the spiritual danger that comes with this unrestrained desire for wealth. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. What does he mean by desire to be rich? We always want to be careful not to jump too quickly to applications. We want to read the text in a discerning way. And the first thing to know is that desire to be rich is interpreted by the phrase in verse 10, the love of money. The desire to be rich is the same as a love of money. 
This implies an inordinate love of money. Money is your God. You don't just desire money, you over-desire money. And you pursue it as the center of your existence. And there is a lust for more and never a satisfaction with what you have. Now keep in mind that where there is an inordinate love of money, there will also be a desire for an inordinate amount of money. Does that make sense? When you love money too much, you're going to want lots of it. Hence the admonition, uh, be careful that you don't desire to be rich, to overflow, to abound uh, in financially well beyond uh, the limits of a simple and modest lifestyle. But what Paul is condemning here is the idolatrous pursuit of money. One thing we want to ask before we go on is when he says those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, would that mean that Christian entrepreneurs, men and women business owners, are sinning because they seek to turn a profit? Right? At one level, we might describe what they're doing as trying to get rich, turn a profit. Uh, is that condemned by the Apostle Paul? When he says in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, is he condemning business owners who seek to turn a profit? Well, it's important, again, to look at the context. The crucial question is, why do they want to become rich? What is their motivation or desire? Notice what Paul has been saying up to this point. He's been talking about contentment with life. If you are satisfied with your circumstances and you are pursuing wealth from that place of satisfaction, it's not a sin. He's t it's a sin when you are dissatisfied with your circumstances. You, you want more and more, and out of that lust for more, you are pursuing ever-increasing wealth. That would be a sin for any Christian, including an entrepreneur. But if there is a Christian entrepreneur who seeks to build a business that provides a real service to society, does some real good in the world, uh, enhances the lives of his or her, her employees, and uses their profit generously for kingdom initiatives, that is certainly not a sin, and that's very essential for the work of the kingdom. Uh, so we would want to say that the pursuit of profit and business can be idolatrous, but is not necessarily idolatrous. It can be perfectly legitimate if that profit is pursued for the right reasons and in the right way. Okay. Well, the emphasis then falls in these verses on the damage, the spiritual damage that comes from pursuing money in an unrestrained way. If there is a great advantage in contentment, there is also great damage that comes from pursuing money in the wrong way. Specifically, those who do so fall into temptation. They are enticed by desires that they wouldn't otherwise be enticed by. They fall into Satan's trap. Those who want to get wealthy above everything else find that they are drawn to temptations that they wouldn't otherwise experience. The pursuit of wealth is addictive. The philosopher Schopenhauer once observed, once observed gold is like seawater. The more one drinks of it, the thirstier one becomes. The more you get, the less content you are. You feel the need to go further and further. Proverbs 30 verses 8 and 9 State, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? 
One of the temptations that comes with material prosperity is that we will rely on ourselves and not the Lord. The Lord. And that's one of the reasons Paul is saying, because of the spiritual danger, it's one of the reasons to be careful with the love of money. He goes on in verse 10 and says, the love of money is a root, not the root, a root, the source, not of all evils, but all sorts of evils. And this lust for money is such a danger to your soul that some, especially the false teachers, have actually wandered away from the faith. Oh my. Here. I'll try not to move, and all will be well. Uh, Love of money rather than love of God, is the source of all sorts of evils. Uh, One evil is that you waste your life, this very short life that the Lord has entrusted to you. Instead of spending it on things that matter, you spend it chasing after wealth that will pass away, that is temporary. Tim Keller, in his uh, little commentary on the Proverbs, observes, wealth sucks you into a frantic cycle. It goes like this. I've earned more, so I'm going to spend more. But now that I'm spending more, I need to earn more. And all the time you feel strapped and not well off, which leads you to work even more. Wealth has the power to make you far too busy with things that are less important. One great damage that results from this mindless, incessant, unrelenting pursuit of wealth is you waste your life. Instead of giving yourselves to things of eternal consequence and significance you chase after the things that are soon gone. Another danger is that in pursuing wealth, you neglect more fundamental and weighty responsibilities in life, you know, raising children, caring for your family, and so on. You ignore your God-given limitations. Only God has infinite strength and energy. We do not. We are creatures. We have finite strength and energy. Another temptation is to disregard your limitations and your limitations on your energy and strength and just burn the candle at both ends, destroying your health in pursuit of more. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. Now, the love of money is one of those sins where it's very easy to convince yourself that you're not guilty of it. There are certain sins that you're conspicuously guilty of and you know what they are. But when it comes to the love of money, many of us tell ourselves we are on the right side of the line. I desire money, but in a contented way, not in the way that Paul is condemning. So how can we find out if our heart and our attitude towards money is legitimate or not? And the first thing I would say is ask God to show you if this is a problem for you. Say, Father, I want my heart to be right. Guide me through your Holy Spirit to see whether or not I love money too much or in the wrong way. Show me through your spirit, your word, or your people. Secondly, assuming that your financial situation remains exactly where it is, could you be content? If nothing were to change about your current financial circumstances, Could you be satisfied? It's a good indication. How do you respond to unexpected expenses? 
You know, AC breaks, car breaks. Are you a little unhappy, disappointed, but your, your response is restrained? Or are there strong negative emotions? How do you respond when your spouse, husband, or wife spends too much, more than you've allotted in the budget? How do you respond? Is it a loving, perhaps firm correction? Or is there anger and frustration and anxiety? Strong negative reactions are often an indication that we care too much about money. Are you neglecting other weightier responsibilities in life than just making money, like your kids, like serving others? Are there significant priorities that you are overlooking because you are spent pursuing more and more? Or do you pray? Do you have time to walk with the Lord, to meditate on his word? Or is that being squeezed out by this relentless pursuit? Are you in serious debt because you love stuff? One indicator. Is there massive debt because you need to have that? Well, that shows a lack of contentment and a preoccupation with money. What do you think about when you're sitting in the dentist's office, just sitting there, staring, not reading anything? Where does your mind go and where does your heart go? If you love money, often your mind and heart will drift towards, man, my life would be better if this investment worked out or if this, if this thing, this business prospect comes together, that'll be awesome. You find that your thoughts and your heart, even in, in moments of, where you're not doing anything, they're, they're, it's moving in that direction. What does your inner life suggest about what is important to you? What do you think about in these unguarded moments? Is there a regular fantasy of more? You know what I'm talking about. So how can you guard yourself against this over-desire for money? Well, the first thing you can do is be generous with your money. If you're not currently tithing, I would urge you to tithe. Uh, yes, we are, as, as many people point out, we are not under the old covenant, we are in the new covenant. But if those who lived prior to the coming of Jesus Christ gave 10% and indeed more than 10%, then how can we justify, we who have seen more of God's goodness and love and wisdom in Christ, how can we justify giving less? So the tithe is a starting point for generosity. But don't think that because you've started there, you should finish there. Uh, generosity is God's calling on all of us. That's the starting point, but we should give as we receive. And we shouldn't think of giving as just this moral obligation. We should think of giving as this liberating and life-giving thing. Acts 20.35, Paul quotes Jesus who says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is more joy and life in throwing, throwing your money to enhance the lives of other people and advance the kingdom than holding on to it. There is joy and life in being generous. Of course, to know that, you have to do it. Second thing I would point out by way of guarding our hearts is we need to know what our calling in life is. When you have a clear sense of what you've been put on this earth to do, what your duties are, what your responsibilities before God are, it's easier to say no to the pursuit of money, right? Where you know your mission, you know what God wants of you. It is easy to say, easier I should say, to say no to running after money. But if there's no clear, this is what I'm put on this earth to do, this is my mission, this is what my priorities are, it's easy to get sucked into the pursuit of money because what else are you pursuing? Having a clear sense of direction helps us to resist the pull of 
money. And finally, as we've suggested already, to find contentment, we look to Christ. It's when we behold the Son of God by faith and all of his goodness and glory that our hearts melt and soften and let go of the tyranny of things. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The eternal Son of God who dwelt for, from all eternity in the glorious presence of the Father set aside his glory and his prerogatives as God and he became a lowly human being among us. And he humbled himself not only in the incarnation, but again at the cross, dying the death of a common criminal, yielding even his life in our place. Through his poverty, we have become rich. Through his sacrifice, we have become wealthy. We have come to experience the forgiveness of God, and we've been adopted into his family. When by faith we see how Christ has, as it were, bankrupted himself to make us rich, our hearts will let go of possessions, and we can live freely and generously in service to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the light of your word, and we pray that insofar as we are not content with where you have placed us through your word and spirit, you'd help us to be content. We pray, Lord, that you'd not allow us to waste our lives running after wealth that will soon be gone. We pray that you'd give us the wisdom, the self-control, the godliness to pursue the things of eternal significance. Amen.